from Local 12 Sports. It's the Skinny Podcast. Now, here's Richard Skinner. Welcome into the Skinny Podcast. It's the weekly Pope edition. I'm Richard Skinner, Local12.com, digital sports columnist, Netto with Rick Roaring. As always, it's presented by Blake, the attorney, Maislin. We're doing this on a Thursday morning after a lot of college basketball being played on Wednesday night that we'll get to. The sun is shining for the first time in 10 days, although I don't think it's shining for UK fans, nor UC fans, nor NKU fans, but it's really shining for Xavier Musketeers fans after they got whipped on Sunday in an ugly fashion at UConn and came back on Wednesday night to uh, to get a huge, huge win over St. John's at home. And Rick, I guess we'll start there. My question, first off, where you've got one for me, I, I, listen, that game against UConn could have turned your season one of two ways. Either you do suck it up and come back home and beat St. John's, or you get your ass kicked again and you're headed to a sub-500 finish, and it was a pretty good way they responded. Yeah, I mean, well, first of all, let's talk about my Sunday. The two teams I cover lost by a combined 73 points, 70 points, and I had to watch every single possession of those games and like go through <laughs> them in detail and then talk about them afterwards. Not, not a great Sunday uh, for me in terms of basketball watching. But- so, Rick, I, I had to go to my, my, my goddaughter's uh, – her daughter turned one, so they had a, a, a birthday party for her on Sunday. Um, so I left the house about 12:15. The Xavier game had just started. I turned, I hadn't watched the TV at that point. I was getting ready to go. So I'm in the car, you know, sometimes you put a game on and it's just background noise initially. Yeah. And I wasn't completely invested in it for whatever reason. My mind was racing about a bunch of other stuff and I'm almost to their house. It's about a 30 minute drive to her house. And all of a sudden I hear, and it's 43 to seven. I went, wait a minute. It's what? I'm like, this is insane. It was hard to believe as you watched the score, tick up and tick up and tick up and that lead get bigger. But like you said, I mean, at that point, and quite honestly, the things you're hearing around the program and guys are losing confidence. And even Sean Miller said after the St. John's game is like, there's no way anybody could have been involved in that game on Sunday and not started to question where things were headed or start to lose some confidence. So uh, the fact that they were able to bounce back with an 88-77 win at home against St. John's, a team that, quite honestly, in my opinion, is a bad matchup for them because yeah. of their front court. Joel Soriano, Chris Ledlam, difficult for Xavier's front court to guard those guys. We, we saw really that the even, first time. Yeah, we saw yeah. that the first time they played. And Danis Jenkins, their guard at 25 last night and, and really gave Davion McKnight and Xavier's backcourt some trouble. So I was looking at that, that game kind of leaning more towards the side of I don't know that this team is going to bounce back. I don't know that that might've been kind of the end of their season there, the way things went at UConn. Uh, We'll we'll see what happens, but I predicted a St. John's win and I was impressed. I thought that was one of Xavier's better performances this year. The way they came out, they played great to start the game, I thought. And then, you know, they have an 11 point lead in the second half. St. John's comes back. They tie it with like four minutes to go. They tie it again with three minutes to go. And at that point, you're thinking, I mean, we've seen this story for the Xavier team. They're young. They, they don't seem to handle those end-of-game situations all that well. And um, they were great. Uh, they, they were really good. They outscored St. John's, I think, like 13-2 to two in the final few minutes, end up winning by 11 points. So I, I thought it was a huge bounce-back performance for Xavier. I don't know that it means a whole lot in the scope of where their season is headed, but it, it could have been headed in a terrible direction, and at least you got it somewhat back on track for the time being. Yeah, I mean, you got the big three that, that went off last night, the three guards, Claude Oliveri and, uh, and Davion McKnight. And we talked about that, too. I mean, that they're capable of that at home. It's just I don't know if they're capable of that consistently on the road. We're going to find out. So to your point, Rick, and, and it probably is too too big to dream, I guess, at this point. But the, the home games they have left are Nova, Creighton, Providence, DePaul, Marquette. Conceivably, 
you can go five and zero at home, and you can get a couple of nice scalps on, on in the process, especially with Marquette. That then leaves road games at DePaul, which you have no business losing. But again, it's a road game, and we've seen this team on the road look disastrous at times. At Seton Hall, which is probably not winnable, but they could pull off an upset. At Marquette is is definitely not winnable, and then at Georgetown is. So if you sweep the home, and they got also Butler. If you sweep the home, and you can get two of those four road games, say Georgetown and Butler, is that enough? Yeah, I mean, they're sitting at 11 wins right now. And obviously, none of this stuff happens in a bubble. It's a moving right. target in terms of how many games you need to win for to, to make an NCAA tournament resume that would be on the right side of the bubble. And obviously, which teams you lose to and which teams you beat will matter. But in terms of just a total number of wins, 18 has been that number, in my opinion, for Xavier since they entered conference play. They need to get to at least 18 wins overall to have a chance. They're sitting at 11 and 10 right now. So... Yeah, I mean, if they go seven and three down the stretch here in these final 10 games, then they absolutely have a chance to be on the bubble. And, and when you're talking about what games that would be, yeah, there's still quad one games mixed in there. Yes. Uh, plenty of opportunities for good wins. The problem, Skinny, is if you've watched this team, it's just hard to imagine them piling up seven wins out of 10 games against Big East competition. So um, while... We can talk about that and throw that out there. In my opinion, it's kind of like useless to get too into will they do it or not because this team hasn't really shown that ability at all this season. Yeah, I understood, but I, I still think I think there ought to be a target that you can invest in if you're a fan or, or a player or a coach, right? Yeah, and, that, and that's no doubt. I mean, that's like what the fan base needs. Uh, that's what everyone talks about this time of year. I mean, there there's no interest in talking about anything except for bracketology pretty much this time of year. And um, I, I've seen that with the Xavier fan base. They're living and dying with each win or loss. And I'm like, well, unfortunately for this team, I'm not sure that's like how you should be evaluating them and you're going to get much out of that this year. But um, if you're asking for a number, I would say it's probably 18 games. So you're looking at seven and three down the stretch. You can always hang another NIT banner. <laughs> well, I mean, that's the problem. The last time you went to the NIT, you won the thing. And then the next year you went to the Sweet 16. So it's kind of hard to do the whole, the NIT is pointless and we're not going to play in it anymore, right? I mean, you kind of no, have right, to take exactly. that invitation. It was a, it was a building block. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, uh, uh, yeah, it'll be interesting to see what happens with all of that. Obviously, still plenty of season to play for the Musketeers, but that that seems like a difficult road for them to, to make through. Um, Cincinnati, Skinny, they... Stormed back to beat UCF 68-57 on Saturday in a game that I thought, you know, looked like it was getting away from them. And yeah. then they they finished off the right way. And I thought that was an important win. But then the exact opposite happened at West Virginia on Wednesday night. They blew a double-digit lead in the second half of that one, ended up losing 69-65. I, I, I'm not sure how much of this game you saw, but my, the biggest thing that jumped out to me were two things. Offensively, I mean, just uh, they looked like a really soft team. 32 three-pointers. Their bigs didn't get to the free throw line a single time. Uh, just not much of a presence inside in that game. And then the second thing is, Skinny, their defense, especially when it comes to guarding ball screens, to me, that should be their strength is their defense. And it was a disaster in this game when it mattered. Down the stretch, especially down the stretch. I mean, Yeah, when that's why when, when, when the game was on the line, yeah, their defense yeah. completely fell apart. Yeah, I did not see actions. any of it. I, I I watched the Kentucky game and listened to the listened to the UC game on the radio. So I had I had every, I was flipping to the Xavier game. So I had I had all kinds. Of, I had sensory overload going on. Is what I had. Yeah, yeah. To your point, the two the two starting bigs last night, Bandago and Victor Locke, and combined to go two for ten from the field. You're right. None of them get to the free throw line. 
Odio Guama was two for two and Jameel Reynolds two for four. So out of out of the combined four bigs that you can put on the floor, they combined for 12 points and, thir- and 16 rebounds by four guys combined, mind you. With zero free throw attempts, which is just right. hard to believe. It's impossible to believe. Yeah, I, I just don't understand that at all. Those guys are not giving them nearly enough. And, and I've said this from the get-go. I just don't think Victor Locken is a Big 12-level starter at the center spot. And the AAC, really nice player. In the Big 12, I just don't know that you can rely on him. And at times, it looks like they're trying to run their offense through him. Well, was it fool's gold? And listen, he, he did shoot the ball at times pretty well from the perimeter in, in the non-conference. But was that fool's gold of getting open looks, you know, not as much pressure, you're up, all those things? A hundred percent. We said that at the time. If you go back and listen to one of the podcasts, you and I actually had a conversation about that exact thing where we made the point of, look, it's nice that Victor Locken is knocking down these shots, but I don't think that's a recipe for long-term success in important games. It's great when you're up by 15 points and you're playing a team that has no chance to stop you. And he's like hitting a trailer three wide open from the top of the key with no stress in the game. But in a real tight game, when it's a one possession lead or deficit, and you need an important shot after a timeout, and you end up getting a three for Victor Locken, that's a major issue. Yeah, no question. And I go back to it if you're Wes Miller, and this is where I kind of feel for him a little bit. Um, I think, you know, he's thrown so many lineup combinations out there because I don't think he's got a group that can play on both ends of the floor. Maybe no coach really does. But if there's one guy you can hide, you hide him because he's going to give you offense. But some of these guys that you're counting on offense from, you don't get it consistently enough. It is literally – the thing that amazes me is when you break down all these games and we keep talking about them and looking at them, how they're in all of them. Yeah, and credit to them for that. Like, I mean, they they have battled. They have competed better, I think, in some of these Big 12 games than some expected them to. And they deserve credit for that. But – one of the issues that I see with them is when we talk about their offense and who kind of their go-to players have become, Dan Skillings is obviously one of them. The other guy that has really stepped up is John Newman. And the problem I see with that skinny is neither one of those seem to be like really high IQ, really scare, uh, skilled, make good decisions with the basketball type of players on the offensive end. And that hurts them late in games. Like I I felt like at the end of this game, when they're trying to run some things out of timeouts and get a good look and important possessions, they had no direction, no leadership. And they had the the go-to guys that you want to be able to rely on were kind of nowhere to be found. And that seems to be a consistent problem for this team in those moments. Well, and again, you have no post player to throw it into and go, Hey, go get us an easy bucket or get to the line somehow. You just don't. is probably better offensively. He's so bad defensively, he gets parked on the bench for long stretches, and rightfully so. Yeah. Well, I mean, like Dan Skillings, if you just think about his background, he just started playing basketball a few years ago. He doesn't have that innate feel that some other guys might have. He's not the guy you want to put the ball in his hands and say, make great decisions and take care of the ball at the end of games. But he's also your most dynamic offensive player and your best scorer most of the time. So um, the the thing I I just don't know, and this has been a problem. If you talk to coaches who have faced UC, this is something that has shown up on film for a few years now with Wes Miller, simple middle ball screens. They can't guard them. I went on synergy last night after this game because I thought, God dang, it seems like a lot of teams are doing this to them. I went back. They are attacked more per game on middle middle ball screens where the, uh, the roller is hit. The big man is hit on the roll. They get that more than any team in the country. They are literally number one in terms of how many times opponents hit the roll man on pick and rolls in a game. It's over 6.2 possessions per game, which is the most in the country. And they're giving up the fourth most points 
on such plays in the country. The three teams that are giving up more are not company you want to be keeping on the defensive end. Yeah, and and that and that for a lot of teams is is, is close game end of game set because it's just it's, it's a pat set to go to. Well, it's scary when the opposition basically has to run the easiest action in all of basketball and they feel like they can get a dunk out of it in in a, in a key moment. And that right now, quite honestly, is the situation for UC. I mean, West Virginia just went to a high ball screen and threw the ball into Jesse Edwards pretty much every time there was a key possession in that game and and it worked for them most of the time. So um, that that is where I would be really concerned as a UC fan is that has been out there because like a, a little hint, how do I know that? Go back and watch the second half of that UCNKU game. Right. It, it yeah. happened a year ago, and I was told before the game that that's what was going to happen. So, like, it's a thing on film that coaches know, and and they are they are scouting. Um, one, one other comment to make here on Cincinnati, Skinny. Right now, after this loss and where they're sitting, picking up that quad three loss, this is where that weak non-conference slate really hurts you because right. you had no margin for error, yep. and now you just used up that margin. Yeah, no. I mean, they're going to have to get a couple of huge scalps on the road. And that's, I think, I mean, they got one. The BYU, honestly, I think the BYU wins the one that's having them hang in there as far as being being a bubble team at the moment. No question. I mean, that was an absolutely huge win for them. Um, BYU's, what, six in the net, I think? Something like that? Yeah, and, and BYU's still sitting as a, uh, as a five seed yeah. right now in terms of bracket matrix. If you're looking at Cincinnati, where do they stand in all of this bracketology stuff? They are the last 11 seed right now, according to bracket matrix, and that would put them in a play-in game if you're the last 11 seed. Yeah. So, um, you know, they're right on the cut line for the bubble as things stand. So, like I said, I mean, that margin of error is completely – gone that they they have to be really good the rest of the way and here's the next four game stretch at texas tech houston at home iowa state number 12 in the country at home and at ucf yeah not easy no any other thoughts on the bearcats here skinny no and i go back like i said i go back every time i I look at a box score at the end of the game i'm looking and going it it just looks like a mishmash of of okay that guy didn't didn't score well oh that guy did that guy didn't do anything oh that guy did and, and that's where I think Wes Miller's at is I don't know if he's got guys he can trust on both ends of the floor all the time. And I, I you know, does CJ Frederick help that? Maybe, but you know, the hamstring thing is real for him. It's, it happened in Kentucky. It's happening here. If he comes back, how durable is he going to be? How much does he give you? I mean, it does give you a shooter for sure. It gives you some IQ on the defensive end, but really how much does he give you? Um, and, and the other point, I, I mean, the, the fact that, that, we talk in terms of how ugly this has been at times. They're in every single freaking game. Yeah. You would hope they'd be able to pull some of these out. I do think CJ Frederick would help them from that knowing what to do IQ at the end of game standpoint. But you also have to wonder, like, it would he be on the court in those moments right. with the way things are going? Is he going to be back to 100%? And can he get back up to speed by, uh, in time for the end of the season? We'll have to see as as things go along. Let's move on to Kentucky, though. They uh, they are ranked number 10 in the country after the latest AP poll came out on Monday, but that could be changing because they have dropped another game. They squeaked one out at Arkansas 63-57 over the weekend. Kind of felt similar to that Cincinnati-UCF game where it wasn't pretty necessarily for the Wildcats. It was a game they needed to win, and they did so. They got the job done. But then they let one get away from them at home against Florida on Wednesday night, 94-91, the final there in overtime. And Skinny, the big conversation that everyone is having today, of course, after that loss is why did Kentucky 
not foul when they were up three on that final possession. They allowed Florida to bury a three to force overtime, and then they lost the game in overtime. And it was a, a simple situation. You go up three on some free throws, they're dribbling the ball up the floor. It's pretty much your, much your patented go foul them, put them at the line so they can't hit a three to tie the game. And uh, Cal just does not believe in that. Yeah, and I think some of it I, – I, listen, I, I've waffled back and forth on that situation. I really have as a, as a coach myself. And my level is different because blocking out is sometimes a little more difficult. I, I truly believe, believe in his heart of hearts, I don't think he trusts in the defensive rebound. Well, I, I don't team, that's a legit concern. Correct. Correct. Now, maybe it's not. Maybe, again, it's a philosophical thing that he's just not going to do it because it's been the philosophy and the longstanding philosophy, and it is. But for me, and, and if I'm – I don't know if I trust my guys to rebound. Didn't Cal have now? I know they were talking about um, uh, an NCAA championship that he lost due to not fouling up three. I didn't. I didn't remember that. Did, I, no, I don't remember that one either. I remember they 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 didn't make free throws down the stretch of of, of the loss to Kansas. Wasn't there an um, wasn't there an SEC tournament game against Mississippi State where they did foul up three and then Mississippi State? I don't remember that missed one. the free throw, got the rebound, and tied it. That one I don't remember. It's I feel like he, I feel like he had a situation um, one of the years where he was complaining about their seeding and the NCAA tournament and all that. They lost to at, at Mississippi State in an overtime game that was like must win as SEC tournament. And you just wonder from a coach's standpoint if once you have one of those situations where it goes the wrong way on you, meaning you foul up three and it doesn't work out or you don't yeah. foul up three and it doesn't work out, you, you wonder if that just changes your philosophy forever. Like it goes the wrong way one time and you're like, okay, I'll never let that happen again. Correct. I'm not a big zone guy. I probably played more zone as a coach this year than I ever have just because of the skill set and who we've played against. But I swear I have that whole thing of the first time a guy makes an open three, it's like, get out of it. It feels like they're going to make every shot they're going to take from here on out, even though that's so unrealistic and it's not going to happen. But as soon as it happens, the first one goes in, that's it. Get out of it. That is it. Every coach's favorite move is once they put their team in a zone and they always hate doing it because head coaches hate playing zone. As soon as the opponent hits a three, they always look to their assistant to say, get us out of it. Immediately. Yep. Yep. No I, I, I think that's so preposterous. I hate that it, about it. It is. No, yeah. I, I'm, I'm telling you about myself. It is completely irrational on my part. But it always like, yep, that first thing, they're going to make 20 in a row, and that's going to be that. Yeah. Here, here's, I, the problem. here's the problem, Rick. I'm going to read off some numbers to you here. Okay. I'm going to read them off. 85, 77, 97, 77, 96, 79, 57. And 94. Two of those were in overtime. Two of the 90s did get to overtime, but still, they were still high-scoring games before they went to the overtimes. The Arkansas game is just simply Arkansas sucks. Now, I'll give you a little bit of, of Kentucky defended that night, maybe out of desperation because they weren't scoring and having a hard time putting the ball in the basket, and sometimes that happens. But again, this whole defensive thing has been real from the outset, and I told you, they're going to get popped a couple of times when they shouldn't get popped because they don't guard. It's a real issue. I mean, those scores you just rattled off, I was looking at the same thing. Now, granted, like this game was in overtime. I understand that. So it's not like you gave up 90 in regulation, but you're still giving up a lot of points per possession. The efficiency number still isn't good. Um, Skinny, I guess, how much did this loss change your opinion of Kentucky? Because it is at home. Is it, a, it is a game where they let it get away from them. Does this give you more like cause for concern than that South Carolina loss did? It does because actually I think South Carolina is pretty good to be honest with you. They've they proven really that year. they can pop some teams. Yeah, yeah, they're having and they're having a really good year. And and um, you know again the offense that night bothers me a little bit. But the fact that that you won by two at Florida, lost this one in overtime, got beat by A and M. You know the Georgia game 
wasn't as close as the final scores indicates was a nine point margin, but still you let Georgia sneak in, sneak back towards it a little bit. The Arkansas game was tooth and nail and they are just terrible. I know they beat Missouri last night. Missouri's even worse. So that was bad beating bad. You know, to me, they, 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 they teeter on the wire every single game. And I'm not so sure that doesn't happen the whole rest of the way. And that's where, again, if you can't get stops and you go maybe two minutes in a dry spell, you're, you're, you're in for a fight. It's one thing to be a team that's so talented offensively and you kind of have that mindset of we, we don't we're not real intense on defense because we kind of like to run up and down the court and score a bunch of points. But when it's time, we will lock in, we will get stopped and we will beat you and we will always outscore you. I felt earlier in the season like that was this Kentucky team for the most part. Like their defensive issues were an issue, but it was sort of part of how they wanted to play. They were OK with that issue. The problem I'm seeing now is they look more like a team that just can't get buckled down and get stops when they need to get stops. It's it's not just that like this is their style of play and they kind of enjoy playing that way and they they like their spurt ability on offense. It's like no, they really have some glaring issues defensively and they don't have that ability to bow their back. I mean, Reed Shepard seems to. He seems to understand these moments. He seems to turn it up a notch when it's time. But the rest of his teammates, they don't seem to get it defensively. That there, there has to be another level of focus and intensity when the game's on the line. Yeah, they're one of their best defensive players is the arrow. And if it's a tight game, you know, do you trust him on the other end of the floor? Um, you know, and then and then you know the, the the shiny excitement of Big Z's worn off very quickly um, because again, it was a shiny new offensive piece. You didn't need that. You needed a, you needed a hard nosed ass defensive piece, and they they that's not what he gives you. Well, uh, let me ask you about that because, you know, we mentioned Zvonimir Visic's big debut uh, four games ago. Since then, he's played 10 minutes against South Carolina, three minutes against Arkansas, six minutes against Florida. He has a combined 4.6 rebounds in those games. On the other side of things, you're talking about they need more defense on the interior. All of a sudden, we've seen a bit of a, a coming out party by Hugo Onyenso. Exactly. Uh, in this game against Florida, 13 points, 16 rebounds, eight blocks, two steals. He's played 25 minutes and 33 minutes in the last two Kentucky games. He's really shown me something. I know I saw a tweet that there's he's the first player in Kentucky history to have that stat line, at least 13 points, 16, blocks at, or, uh, 16 rebounds and eight blocks. Pretty impressive considering the Very. players that have come through Kentucky, the Anthony Davises and, and the like that have put up numbers like that. So um, it seems like Cal is – starting to gain some trust in him, and maybe he is more of your answer on the defensive end. Well, I think he is, but you need more than just a guy standing at the rim blocking shots. I mean, you just do, right. and, they, and, they, and they, don't, they, don't, they don't seem to have that at other positions. Um, you know, as much as I like Reed Shepard in, in, in his IQ, he still can get beat on drives. He's not, not the quickest cat in the world. Um, and then to my point of Thierro, I think he, you know, he, he put him in the starting lineup. Some of this, you know, DJ Wagner didn't play. Edwards has, has had some issues here of late, whatever those are. Um, and so, again, I think much to the UC part of it, you got some guys that can certainly play on the one end of the floor, but really can't play a lick on the other end of the floor. And so it's a tough, it's a tough way to, to mix and match your lineups. Is Reed Shepard their best player? No, not even a doubt. Not even a doubt. He played I mean, 45 if, minutes in that game, Skinny. 45. If, and if they had a, st- a, a statistic for hockey assists where he pushes it up the floor to somebody else, he'd lead the country in that. Yeah, I mean, he finished the game with 24 points on 10 of 18 shooting. He had eight rebounds, six assists, two blocks, three turnovers, and 45 minutes of action. That's a freshman. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, it, I, he, it, it was he, kind of an afterthought, right? It was, oh, you got a Mr. Kentucky. You need to take him. He's lineage. It's Jeff Shepard's kid. And, and that was, I think that's what everybody felt like. And instead, he's turned out to be their best player. 
people really started nitpicking him his senior year of high school and then the summer leading into his freshman year here at Kentucky. There were a lot of people that were starting to fall off the bandwagon and be like, eh, don't know how good this kid is. He's he's so-and-so's little little boy. That's why he's here. All of that stuff. And, um, man, he has really put those people to uh, to rest really quickly with his play. Skinny, one more thought on this. You know, we're, we're talking about Kentucky's defense and their issues. Is it possible, let me get my tinfoil hat on here, is it possible we've just got some elite-level SEC bid collusion going on right now? I mean, think about this. Florida's first four out right now. Kentucky's sitting as the last three seed. You get, Florida gave Kentucky that win on the road at Florida. Did UK turn around and give the favor back and saying, here you go, here's an open three at regulation to tie it. We'll, we'll play this in overtime for you. We'll give here's, you a chance, Gators. Here's the thing. you want bid collusion or you want teams to get high enough seeds and higher seeds so they can advance further in the tournament? Good point. Good point. But th- the thing is, that the, the bid collusion, you get enough teams in there, better chance you win one or two of those and you get your you get your credits, right? So Yeah, I, I will say there was a point in time where I thought Kentucky was going to play its way to a two seed and, and maybe even play its way to a one seed. That I was probably probably far-fetched. But I thought certainly do a two seed. Now they're probably hanging on the five line and with another – they play Tennessee Saturday. You know, another loss and, another, you know, you suddenly slip down to the six line at some point. Yeah, they they are sitting as the last three seed currently on bracket matrix, but that's obviously not all of those have been updated since right. they they lost to at home to Florida, so that is going to change. Um, Skinny, before we talk about NKU, there was a an ask Skinny anything question that came in related to college basketball. Actually, a couple of them. Um, we're talking a lot about this, so I feel like I already have your answer. But when do you start looking at bracketology? Was the question. Um. When conference plays got a couple of weeks in, maybe even two or three weeks in, I, I that's probably the first time I looked this year. And now I look like everybody else. I probably look at bracket matrix at least every other day um, and look at Jerry Palm and Bra- and, and Joe Lenardi stuff when it comes out. So, yeah, a couple of weeks into conference play, in my opinion, I, I don't think I don't engage anything out of non-conference action. Can you? I mean, anything realistic? No, I mean, it's, it's completely worth it. If you're looking at bracketology stuff or reading tweets from that idiot from ESPN before the turn of the new year, you've got serious right. issues. I mean, you just right. don't understand what's going on in college basketball. It makes no sense to look at that stuff that soon. Now, my day is always today. It's fe- it's February 1st. Whenever the month turns over to February, I'm like, okay, everyone's pretty much halfway through conference play at this point. You can start actually getting some real data points and, and having an idea of where things stands. And it also sets up nice for like, hey, if we're midway through conference play, what do all these teams need to do in their last – 10 to 12 games, whatever it is to, to kind of finish it off here. So no, that's, that's, right. that, that's, probably, that's probably, honestly, that's probably a good line of demarcation, a great line of demarcation. Some would say uh, final four teams was the other question. Do you have final four picks as we stand here on February 1st? Who would you throw in there? Uh, I mean, UConn is so head and shoulders to me above anybody else. They're Agreed. the most complete team. I, I want to put Purdue in there just because Edie's such a freaking unicorn and, and, and he's just an impossible matchup and their guards are playing better this year, but we've seen that before too. And then they get in tournament play and get exposed. I do think they're legit. I, I have a hard time putting Houston in there because I just don't know if they score enough. Um, and, and that's, they, they've proven that wrong, you know, before. Uh, so yeah, I, I really don't because I mean, I looked the other day, one of the, I think it was yesterday. I looked at Bracktown the day before and Carolina was a one seed. I'm like, when the hell did that happen? Where did that come into play? Yeah. They're sitting as the last one seed right now. Yeah, still, I don't believe in them either. Yeah, I mean, I think any team you look at, aside from maybe those top three, Purdue, Houston, and UConn, 
after that, any team you look at, I think you're going to be talking about some real glaring holes, and you're going to have serious concerns about any of those teams. Um, I, I mean, Tennessee I love, just got Auburn. I, none of them do much for me. Yeah, Tennessee feels so reliant on one player on the yeah, offense. Right. Then that's just it's hard to to really love them. Yeah, I don't really like anyone off of the one line. I wouldn't say right now, but I agree with you that UConn seems to be heads and shoulders above everyone else. I like Houston better than Purdue personally, but yeah, I was on Mike Petralia's podcast yesterday. We talked mostly Bengals, obviously, because we both cover them and that was Bengals centric. We talked a little college basketball at the end and and we were talking about UConn. And I I just, I said, give me the weakness that they have. They can score in transition. They can walk it up, throw it into a big man or run their stuff and get a good look. They guard, they rebound, they offensive rebound. They play at the rim. What don't they do? Their guards are all huge. Like everyone is six, four, six, five and tough. Um, the other thing is they're all into the new analytics. So it's like, yeah, they guard. They're also doing it at like the analytical level where they give up no three pointers. They funnel everything into the mid range. They're doing everything you want to see, whether you're new school, old school, whatever. They've got something for everyone. They're clearly the best team in the country this year. I don't even think it's close. Now, that doesn't always mean you win a national championship. No, correct. We've seen that a thousand times. Right. Right. But they are clearly the best team in the country this year. And I don't think yeah. that's up for debate at all. Nope. All right, um, let's wrap it up here with some NKU talk. The Norse are sitting at 11 and 11 overall, 6 and 5 in Horizon League play. They lost 63 58 to Purdue Fort Wayne on Thursday, and then a brutal 82 52 loss at Youngstown State on Sunday afternoon. Um, Skinny, the, the offensive fit efficiency with this group has fallen to ninth in Horizon League play. And they were scoring some points earlier in the season. They're trying to play faster, they've revamped that offense. But I think at a certain point, I hate to keep harping on it, but they lost one of their best players and one of their most important offensive players. And I think you're seeing the lack of options is just making it pretty tough for them on offense at times. Yeah, I obviously didn't see the Youngstown game you did as the analyst. I I did go to the IPFW or the PFW game. Sorry, they're not IPFW anymore. They dropped the I to the PFW game. And they look so disjointed offensively. And it was almost like PFW said, you're going to have to dub this off late in the shot clock to Trey Robinson, and he's going to have to prove to us he can make a jump shot on a consistent basis, and he couldn't. And that's where it looked like he and L.J. Wells had kind of picked up the pace that was lost by Sam Vinson, but maybe that was fool's gold in a small sample size. Well, th- those two are the key, in my opinion. They have I to agree. be consistent. Like th- Those are the guys with the talent. With a little bit of offensive skill, they'll have their ball in their hands and the flow of the offense. They have the ability to go make a play, be a bigger, better athlete than some of the players in the Horizon League, and consistently they're just not doing it enough. Yeah, I don't think – I mean, it didn't look like it, either one of them attacked enough in my opinion. Especially Trey seemed to settle for for mid-range to three-point jump shots. And yeah, honestly, and- his stroke looks good. He just doesn't make – yeah, and that's what a lot of teams are obviously trying to get them to do on the defensive end. So that's the game plan from the opposing defenses. But um, I would agree with you that if if I'm LJ Wells or Trey Robinson at six seven, physical and athletic, I'm burying guys around the basket. I'm just trying to power my way through contact and, and get to the rim and be just an athletic, physical presence inside. Because quite you've, honestly, you've seen, you've seen everybody in the league this year, right? Once, yeah. Am I, am I correct? At least once. Yeah. Well, right. State on Sunday will be the first time, but yeah. okay. But you know about them. Yeah. How, how many teams have an elite shot blocker? Uh, well, Z, I mean, maybe you would say the freshman at Youngstown State, Gabe Dines, yeah, who they didn't even play this weekend. Yeah, he's he's probably the best shot blocker in the league, but he's yeah. not very mobile or anything. No, that, that's my point. So if you're going to bury – if you're, if Trey Rodgers is being guarded by a three, it's probably a 6'5 or 6'6'3, go take him in and bury him. Yeah. 
And that's the way most of the league is, right? I mean, like Trey Robbins and LJ right. Wells are big athletic dudes in the Horizon League. They need to take advantage more of that. The other guy that I would throw out there, because if you look at that stretch where NKU was really playing well, um, they had the two games against the Wisconsin teams where they won by an average of 20 points. And they had some pretty good performances right before that as well, where they didn't necessarily, the results didn't show. But Kian Atijere had taken a major step forward offensively, was giving them consistent double digits on offense. And it's not like you're throwing it to him in the post and playing. Well, that's what I'm asking. So, so, so maybe is that something maybe they should do? I was literally going to get to that point of it feels like all those points come off the offensive glass or rim running. Um, I mean, how much maybe could, should they play through him a little bit? I think it's hard because they tried to do it against Youngstown State when he had the mismatch against Emmanuel Zorgval, the former NKU center who transferred to Youngstown State because he's very thin. Keen's bigger, stronger. And I think they thought there's the size advantage, throw it into Keen. He, he's another guy. He just started playing basketball. You know, in his late teens, he's he's a bit raw, and I just don't. He he didn't play much at Marquette at all because he redshirted right. the first year, and then didn't see any time as as a redshirt freshman. So he's a guy that's still just finding his way. I don't think he's comfortable with his back to the basket as a post player, but I do think you're going to have to get creative about like, can you get him a few more opportunities where he's got a head of steam and he's ripping to his right hand going to the rim? Can you find him a few more things where maybe you hit him on a on a short roll and he has just six to ten feet? between him and the basket where he can make a quick move, use his athleticism and try to dunk on somebody. Those are the situations. And of course the, the lobs at the rim right. off the of pick and rolls where he's been very good this year. If you can get more production out of him, he's the other guy that quite honestly, there's just nobody in the league like him. He's a freak athletically. You, you got to get something out of him. Yeah. It feels like right now, Marcus Ward's got to score 40 points for them to have a, have a chance. That, that's it. And that's the case when these other guys, the three guys we just talked about, don't have it going at all on offense. It's just way too much pressure on Marquez Warwick, and that's not going to work for this team. Now, Marquez Warwick is incredible. He can score 30 of them for you, but you can't ask him to do more than that every single night. No, I agree. Uh, all right. Anything else on college basketball, Skinny? Uh, that was a, a good like forty minute segment we just spent there. It was we love college basketball though? And it's the time of year to certainly certainly discuss it. Can, can I give you my other one too? And this this kind of was a trend in the NCAA tournament last year, and I just it just flabbergasted me. How many guys get fouled on three point shots? It's the damnedest thing. I, I just I hate it with a passion. I think that is strictly a sign of the times with how important the three-point shot has become both offensively everyone relies on it so much and defensively you're so worried about not letting those three-point attempts get up that so just contest I mean, with a high hand and and then stop it that way that, I that agree. does as much as trying to jump at a guy to block it i agree but listen to these coaches in the huddle skinny when they're talking to their guys the way they're screaming at them to chase around screens and trail them all out trail and all these other things that they tell their guys I got to be on it. I mean, it's hard to have that much body control to be sprinting around full sc- full speed, chasing guy around two or three screening actions. And then at the last second, he's catching and rising up on a dime. You bump into him. It's now a foul. Like, it's just a hard way to guard the way the sport has evolved. It is hard to guard all these guys running off screens and shooting threes and coaches like they want you to be out there challenging that shot. They don't want you to give up any open threes. So yeah, the, the ugliest whistle to me is like, if you're watching a game and you got your head down, whatever, maybe doing some work, you got a game on the background, you hear the whistle and the, and the crowd roar and you look up for an and one, it's an and one off of a made three point shot. Yeah, ab- absolutely. And it, that is, I hate seeing it. I'm with you hundred percent. I totally agree with what you're saying, but I, I have come to accept that. I think this is just a sign of the times and the way the game has changed. You need to come to accept that the charge is a real thing too, my friend. Uh, I think you are on the old side of that. I think you need to get with the times there. Maybe. 
All right, let's switch gears to the Bengals because you have been doing a, a, a three-part or four-part series, three-part yep. three series on Local 12, taking a look at the Bengals' needs during the 2024 offseason. First part was about special teams. Second was about offense. The third part was about defense that just went up yesterday. So we'll go in the same order here. The only special teams question that I really have is about Brad Robbins, Skinny. Will he have competition in training camp? And, and how think, in danger is he of like losing his job? I don't think he's in danger, but I do think there will be. We asked Aaron Simmons late in the year. It was the week of the Cleveland game. We got a chance to kind of – that was kind of our last debrief with all three coordinators um, was, was kind of that week. And that question came up to Darren, and he said, you know, I haven't thought about it yet. Um, we'll, re- we'll revisit him at the Combine. We'll talk to him again in late, late February when we go up to Indianapolis for the Combine. That was last year where he literally said for Drew Crispin that – I mean, he kind of laid, laid down the law about – getting competition for him and how bad that punt was in Kansas city. And it felt like at that point, whatever competition was coming in was probably going to win the job, especially when they drafted him. I do think there there's going to be competition. Um, I'm interested to see if some team gives Brad Ariza a shot at some point. He was the, the punter who came out of San Diego state as the punt God went to Buffalo, won the job, then was involved in, in accusations of gang rape. He's been cleared of all those charges. And at that point you would say, okay, he's cleared. Some team should give him a chance, right? I mean, especially the way we operate in sports in this country. Like, usually that's the hottest name. Look at Chris Beard in college basketball. It's like people can't wait to hire this guy. No, right. Exactly. Um, But, yeah, I I do think there will be competition. It won't be, I don't believe, via a draft pick. It'll either be a – It'll be a veteran free agent that they bring in, or, or you know, maybe somebody that was was a rookie last year they liked on another team that, that punted and got out punted by somebody. There's so many. It feels like there's so many punters floating around. There's a guy who punted for the Steelers this year, Brad Wing, who the last time I remember him punting was a Monday night game against the Bengals in 2016. I mean, these guys just seem to hang out there. I'm not so sure you don't give Drew Chrisman another look just to give him a look. I mean, he's got a leg. He's still around. He's been punting at Hamilton High School he and has. Elder and LaSalle yep. and St. X. I love his social media videos. He's been delivering DoorDash. Yeah, he's making the rounds for sure. So, yeah, I do think there will be competition, but I also think that that Darren Simmons has a belief in him. He talked about, listen, he's he's, he's very good in practice. It doesn't seem to translate to the games, and he he's not sure why that is, and maybe it's just a rookie thing. So, we'll see. I mean, if you look at the raw numbers, they were terrible. He was 31st in the NFL in in, in gross punting. Um, I think he was 27th in net, in net punting, and actually that was with the Bengals' uh, coverage unit allowing only seven yards per return. So some of that was – you know, punts that, that rolled into the end zone or, you know, whatever didn't, you know, were fair caught at 40 yards, whatever. I mean, so his net wasn't very good. He wasn't great. It wasn't awful. It wasn't great. Um, so, yeah, I I don't think he cost them a game. I don't. That's the one thing I can look back on. My takeaway from Darren Horn's uh, – Darren Horn – Darren Simmons' comments about this was it sounded like he was in over his head mentally – Right. Like he looked good in practice, but then the game, there were too many things going on. It was too fast for him. And all of a sudden he couldn't do the same thing that he did every day in practice in an actual game when conditions weren't ideal. So I don't know if that's a fixable thing or not, but the, the one thing I always think about kickers and punters is unless you have one of the elite couple of guys in the league at the top or one of the worst couple of guys in the league at the bottom, they're all pretty much the same. Yes. So why would you ever stick with one who's not performing? Because Understood. you can go out and find anyone off the, the scrap pile, and they'll basically be league average. So yeah, I, and that's where I, I, I go back to. Yeah, that's where I go back to. I'd be stunned if there's not competition for him. 
Yeah. And I think part of it, too, is provide that competition to, to make him feel that nervous effect, too, not just go, hey, it's my job. And, and I, Brad's not that guy. I mean, I've talked to him enough times. I, I you know, I, I personally like him. Um, I don't think he's that guy that would go, hey, it's my job. I'm good to go. No, he'll work at it. He works hard at his craft. But I also think being pushed is never a bad thing either. Right. Are there any other special teams storylines to really keep an eye on? Yeah, the only one is is how many of the core special teams guys are, are up for free agency. Um, you know, Mitchell Wilcox took the most snaps on special teams. Now, he is a restricted free agent, so in all likelihood, the Bengals will be able to retain him. Uh, Marcus Bailey's been a core free a core special teams guy. Akeem Davis Gaither. Uh, I think the, the top five guys in, in special team snaps last year are all free agents, but I think they're all re-signable for different reasons. Wilcox, again, he's a core special teams guy. Certainly can be a third tight end. You don't, you know, he's not going to be anything more than that. And that's a fine tight end to have, especially if he's going to add value on special teams. Marcus Bailey, Joe Bocci offer uh, offer value as backup linebackers have both played okay when they've been called upon. Uh, the Davis Gaither one, and we may get to that when we talk about the defensive part of it, is um, I think he does look elsewhere because I think he's looking for an opportunity to play. It just hasn't really come to fruition here. So I think you're going to lose him. Um, but you know, the special teams group wasn't bad last year. He had a bunch of you know rookies playing it. Um, you know, Jordan Battle was a personal protector at times. Andre Yoshibash was a gunner when he'd never done it and did pretty well in that role. So he also got some 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 valuable time for some of those guys from last year. But to your point, I mean, the, the biggest question mark is, is the punting situation. All right, let's switch to the offensive side of things. You started out the piece on the offense talking about T. Higgins. Will the Bengals use the franchise tag on him or not? We've talked about this a few times, but go ahead and give us your thoughts on where that stands once again. Yeah, I... I, I Everybody's saying the right thing, right? Joe Burrow says the right thing that he you know, expects T to be back. Uh, Zach Taylor says, I can't imagine, you know, life without T Higgins. Um, I was not, I'm not at the, the senior bowl, but Kelsey Conway did a Q and a with Duke Tobin where he talked about, you know, we want to have T back. It's a, it's a hefty price. 20.7 mil is the projected franchise tag price. Uh, I'm going to do a column, I think on Friday on local12.com of the reasons to do it and the reasons not to do it. Reasons to do it are obvious. Your quarterback wants him back. When he's healthy, he's extraordinarily productive. He's a great he's a great Robin to to Jamar Chase being Batman. He's the perfect one A or two if you want to drop him to the two level. I don't think he's a complete one. I've said that before, but I can give you a one A tag for him. The, the flip side is that does dictate some other things that you you may want to do in free agency and can't. Um, the chances are you aren't going to get him beyond the franchise tag. I can't imagine there's a long term deal for both him and Jamar Chase. So it is really just a one year deal that you're doing it for. I do think, again, that gives you a better chance to get to the ultimate goal of winning a Super Bowl. We've seen how far they can get with those guys and with a healthy Joe Burrow. The flip side is, again, that's some money that maybe you need to spend elsewhere. Um, you know, I, it, it's been joked a little bit, but, you know, do you make a run for Chris Jones at defensive tackle? And what could that look like if he's plugged into that defense um, that needs someone like that? Uh, you know, and it's going to come at a hefty price tag that if you sign T Higgins, you may not be able to do that maneuver. Um, you know, we'll get to it again, but you know, Harrison Smith, if the, if the Vikings decide to make him a cap casualty, it's not going to break the bank for you to sign Harrison Smith, but it's going to cost you eight to $10 million to sign him. And again, they've got some stuff under the cap that's going to start getting chewed up as we move along with the Burrow contract and the Jamar Chase extension, you need a right tackle. You're going to have to pay for that, whether it's re-signing Jonah Williams or or or, uh, or somebody else uh, off the street. I don't imagine there's a plug-and-play draft guy. That hasn't worked very well. I don't think I'm going to go that route if I'm the Bengals. I'm going to draft somebody, but not to go, hey, let's draft him, plug and play him. I, I just don't see that. So you've got some other needs. The cons are, again, that price tag and the fact that 
he gets hurt. Um, you know, the, the hamstring thing seems to be quite real for him. And are you getting 17 games out of T or are you getting 12 out of T? I, I like T and, and, you know, he's, he's a very good player, but that seems to be a real issue. And so, you know, you're kind of rolling the dice there that, Hey, if I'm getting him for 20.7 mil, I, I, I got to get 17 games out of this guy. And there's no guarantee you're getting that. But this specific move with just T Higgins though, that really, I mean, it would have a significant impact on all the things that you're talking about, right? I yes. mean, this is one yeah. maybe the biggest free agency decision they have to make. Correct. And, and that to me is the one that, that, that sets the bar for all the other things that they do or don't do. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's really going to have a big impact on the rest of these decisions. It feels like is, is chart was well, keep it with wide receivers. Is Charlie Jones, the replacement for Tyler Boyd, in your opinion? That was the reason he was drafted. Again, they've been pretty good at preemptive strikes, although the Dax Hill one didn't work out so well uh, to this point. Um, and I think that's the hope for Charlie Jones is he is the he's the slot receiver. Was on IR. Um, you know, from what I understand, he he had a hard time kind of learning the nuances of where to go in against zones, where to sit down, where to move, where to slide. Things that Tyler was really good at again because he'd done it multiple times. Um, you know, does an off season for Charlie Jones and then him getting, you know, mega reps and OTAs and in training camp, does that fix that and let him hit the ground running as a slot receiver? I think that's the hope, but you know, hope is never a plan. So, you know, if you let T Higgins go, you're probably going to have to draft the wide receiver. And I don't think they do. I think they end up, the, the end story is I do believe they're going to franchise tag him. Um, you know, he's going to not like it and he's going to kick and scream about it. Like they all do. He won't show up till August 5th, but he'll eventually do what Jesse Bates did sign it. Play, play your ass off, go get paid by somebody else. It's a win-win for everybody. It was a win for the Bengals getting Jesse Bates back for the year. It was a win for Jesse Bates because he went and got paid in, in, in Atlanta. So, yeah, I mean, if, if you're looking to replace, you know, two wide receivers at, at, at that point, and if you don't believe in Charlie Jones can, can plug and play this next year, do you have to go the veteran route at the slot receiver position? You may have to do that too. So there, there's some questions at the receiver position um, that, that, are, that, that, that can be fixed by one franchise tag to some degree, and then, you know, I don't need Charlie Jones to be great. I just need him to be serviceable, and, you know, maybe he will be great in, in that role. We saw him actually kind of flash in that, that last game against Cleveland where he caught a seam route, and then uh, they ran him on a couple of, of quick jet sweeps that I don't think Tyler quite has the burst he used to to use him in that role that Charlie Jones does. Do we see him kind of do that role that the, the Rams do so well with their wide receivers and, and Detroit does so well with those wide receivers? And maybe that's the dimension Charlie Jones adds. So to your point, I mean, that's been the hope when they drafted him is – be a punt returner this year, get some snaps here and there, and we can fit him in, and then he hits the ground running as a slot receiver in 2024. The decision on Joe Mixon, uh, it it has to be quick, doesn't it? It does. So on the fourth day of the – the two days prior is the legal tampering period, but that's when free agency begins is March 13th. Um, he gets a $3 million roster bonus if he's on the roster on that date. And so if he's on the roster at that date and they're going to have to pay that roster bonus, well, you're not going to pay that roster bonus and then cut him in June. I mean, that just that makes absolutely no sense. So they've got to make that decision quick. And if he does, you know, if they do opt to not leave him, they, they save about $5.75 million. Now that, that's doesn't, that, that doesn't, that just sounds like chump change to some degree, but in this depressed marketplace for running backs, can I take that $5 million and maybe add another mill or two to it and go find somebody better than Joe Mixon? I think I can. I really believe I could. I mean, I mean, his salary is what? Supposed to be around $11 million for the year? Well, that was for the two years. It's like five. It's five and change this year, and then he has $2 million. I think it's $2 million, 2.75 of dead money 
uh, because of the prorated signing bonus from last year when he restructured his contract. So um, it's like 5.75 mil, I believe, something along those lines. Yeah, I mean, um, so it's not insignificant. I think for a little bit right. more, you could find a, another running back that's at least as good and something new that yeah. may have more upside, if not something that's just entirely better at this point in their career. I agree, and I, I think that 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 to me would be the the prudent route to go. I believe it's the route they will go. Um, but again, if he's on this roster on March 16th and the roster bonus is paid, again, it would be pretty ignorant to pay that bonus and then go, oh yeah, well, we're going to go somewhere else in this direction. Here's the other decision that feels like a huge one to me. Spotrack says that the the worth for Jonah Williams potential contract coming up is four years, 43-ish million. Would you re-sign Jonah Williams for around that number? I don't think so because I, I, I've i gone back and forth in this in my mind too. And again, that's not gospel, but that is their market value. And it's at least a nice place to start to, to have a conversation about it and kind of look at where it may go. Um, I don't think you could get him back. I think somebody's going to be willing to pay him something along those lines. I mean, if you could get him back for two years at whatever that average would be, I would think about doing that. Um but then do you say, okay, we're going to go and take, go, go sign a guy for a year at 10 mil. We're not going to save a lot on the annual. We're just going to save a lot in a long-term term contract because we're not going to be tied to that. Well, that's Riley Reef range. And that's, you know, that's Lyle Collins range. And those, those weren't awful, but it wasn't like those things worked out great either. Now, both of them got hurt and that was, they both kind of drifted off into the sunset after they got hurt. But, you know, neither one of those signings moved the needle for me a whole lot. So are we in that territory? I know fans consistently scream about draft offensive line. Have you watched what they've done in the draft? I mean, give me a break, draft offensive line. Again, you got to draft them at some point, but I, again, I know this is a tackle rich class, supposedly like eight tackles could go in the first round. Great. Let other teams deal with that. I'm not dealing. I'm just not, I, I don't trust I don't trust college offensive linemen. I just don't. To me, that would say, great, there should be more available in the free agency market this year if everyone feels like they're going to get a stud in the draft. Yeah, yeah, that's a good so point. I, I would be more more aggressive in the free agency market at this point if I'm the Bengals. They're in a different spot than some other teams are right now. They are right. in win-right-now mo- win mode, and, and they should approach it that way. Yeah, and that's the part of, of, of the franchise tag for T. Higgins, right, is if you're in win-now mode – Bring as many pieces back as you can capably bring back. And that may even include saying, we're going to pay for Jonah Williams. You know, and maybe that is, I don't think it's going to happen, but maybe that is the case. But yeah, and I think you definitely are in win now mode. Um, you still have a lot of guys who've played played in the Super Bowl, started in the Super Bowl. They're still under contract on this roster. And so if that's still the case when you're in win now mode, and they clearly are, you try to bring, I think, as many pieces back as you can bring back. I would agree with that. Uh, last question here on the offense. Drew Sample and Tanner Hudson both should be back, right? I think so. Um, the, the, the the issue for me, and I wrote it in the piece of they both brought individual skills like Drew. Drew is that running back blocker. I mean, I thought he was superb in that role and superb actually kind of in a check down role and turned some check downs into, um, you know, more yards after catch than I would have ever anticipated in my life watching Drew Sample do. So I think he does fill that role. I know that I know how they feel about him. I mean, Brian Callahan, he's not with the Bengals any longer, but Zach Taylor feels the same way late in the year. He literally, he said, I want to pontificate on him for a minute. And he went on speaking in, in just glowing words about Drew Sample and what, what he does. The flip side for Tanner Hudson is he's not a great inline blocker. I mean, he went to college as a quarterback at Memphis and eventually transitioned to tight end. He certainly showed himself as a receiver in the passing game. There's no question. Joe Burrow brought him up at his season ending press conference. Cause somebody asked a question about Tanner. 
Um, but he, he's gotten Joe Burrow's trust, and that means a ton, as we know, um, as a receiver. And so they each fill their individual role, but I think this is the year that you you probably do have to um, either go out on the market or in the draft sooner rather than later, maybe not as early as the first round, but certainly high enough to where it's a it's a three-down t- tight end that you can bring in here and play. And, and again, I know everybody can point to Sam Laporta last year. That's fair. In hindsight, it, it is. And maybe you didn't have hindsight as a fan. Maybe that you were screaming to the hills at that point in the draft to take him instead of Miles Murphy. I get it, but you didn't get him. So now I think you're at that, that point where, again, because it feels like every time Tanner Hudson's in the game, it's, it's a pass. And whenever Drew Sample's in the game, it's either to be a blocker in the backfield or it's a run. Sam Laporta is the one – draft name like that where you know fans always do that thing where it's like well, we could have drafted so-and-so instead of this guy Sam Laporte is the one that I'm willing to listen to fans say it because sure. so many people wanted him at the time right it's not a, it's not a hindsight thing with Sam Laporte for the most part most of the people that are saying that really were on the we should draft Sam Laporte right now train and, and I'll well, give them credit for that because no, they were dead right he was great yeah and a lot of the conversation remember in last year's draft was was drafting a tight end the question was was really where are you going to do that yeah. And, you know, all the conversation of hometown kid Michael, Michael Mayer, Mayer. there, do you take yeah. him? And then Laporta's name comes up, and and they pass all the way across the board and felt like, you know, we'll go sign a free agent. We'll plug and play him like we did Hayden Hurst. That obviously failed. But it's funny, if you look back at the tight end group, they had as much production as they did last year from a receiving standpoint. Tanner Hudson is a receiver. is really good, in my opinion. Well, the thing about Tanner Hudson is it feels like there's a legit upside there, too. Right. He still feels real raw and like he's just getting his feet wet, but he looked like a real receiver out there. Yeah, the problem again is he's just he's not quite there as an inline blocker yet, and that's a part of that role of being a tight end is being an inline blocker. Yeah. Well, it'll be interesting to see if they do actually upgrade that tight end position this year because I think from a fan's perspective, it's been talked about each of the last few seasons as, as a possibility. So, all right, let's flip over to the defensive side. It was the last piece you put up just yesterday. Um, defensively, I think Reader and Awuzier are the two big free agent names. Let's start with those two. How do you see it playing out with those guys? I, I think for anybody right now, for DJ Reader, it's a matter of when does he get healthy and what does he right. show once he's healthy as far as being – what what can he do physically? I mean, he's now blown out both quads. He came back from the first one, and you hope he comes back. I hope for him personally because, I mean, what a sad circumstance. I don't think the Bengals were going to sign him, you know, uh, re-sign him. I think he was going to hit the market and was going to make probably another pretty piece of change from somebody else that was going to be able to pay that – and obviously, when you get hurt like this, that takes your market value way down. Um, you know, to me, let's just assume for argument's sake that he he is able to come back ooh, sometime mini campish, maybe even show something physically by training camp. And he's not signed at that point because people need to see what he is physically. I think at that point, it's, it's maybe a win-win for both to sign a one-year prove-it deal with incentives built in to say, hey, you need to prove to the league you're healthy enough and we're willing to take the chance for, to let you prove it because we know you. You know us. He's loved in that locker room. Um, you know, this is more of a business decision than it is a football decision for a lot of these, for a lot of that. They all love him. And he still proved this past year he can play, you know, when he's healthy. You know, maybe that one year prove it deal is the best for both. And then, you know, you part ways after after that. But I think first things first, you got to figure out if he's healthy enough to even play. Selfishly, it feels like that one year prove it deal might actually end up kind of working out in the Bengals' favor. Uh, yeah, and I, I'm, I'm thinking that same thing, too. I mean, there, maybe, again, when free agency hits, there's a team that says, we think you are going to get healthy and we are going to give you – maybe it's not a one-year prove-it deal. We're going to give you a two-year deal with this amount guaranteed. It's hard for him to say no to that. Do you see them potentially looking to make another big splash on the defensive line, going out and 
grabbing a free agent or making a trade or something like that? Well, that's the one thing that, that again, that depending on where the money is, you know, I, I I know it's been brought up the whole Chris Jones. Do you make do you make a legit run at Christian? I mean, if you told me this time last year they were going to make a legit run for Orlando Brown, I would have laughed at you. And said no, there's right. no way, there's right. no way. Um, so I guess I'll never say no to to, to anything. I don't I don't think that'll happen. Um, but then you know you go back to the back end of the defense and and you know Cheeto going. You know, again, he might even be best served on a one-year prove-it deal, but I do think somebody is going to be willing to pay him starter money for three years at a minimum probably, um, and it'd be hard for him not to take that, and the Bengals aren't going to try to match it because uh, I think their starting corners going into next year, Cam Taylor-Britton and, and DJ Turner. But right now the depth behind them isn't isn't all that that great, so I think you're going to have to go to the draft to get a, a – you know, probably in the first three rounds and get another corner to add to the depth. You know, don't forget DJ Ivy had shown a little bit but then blows his knee out against Minnesota, so when does he come back uh, healthy? So, you know, they're kind of thin at the corner position. And then the big question mark is the safety spot. You know, there was a – well, that last week was so eye-opening from so many people kind of pointing the finger right at Dax Hill uh, for a lot of issues. Um, and it, it lends to the question of, okay, is it just he really suffered growing pains and it was his first year as a starter back there and it's going to get better because um, he does have a skill set. He certainly is athletic enough and it, it – it, like anything else, it does take time for guys to figure all these things out. Or do you say, well, you know, we hope that, but we can't. Can we bank on that? I think I'd rather bring a veteran in here and then let you know Dax maybe play kind of a third safety role. Or again, I think eventually maybe transition into the slot corner role after Mike Hilton probably leaves after next year as a free agent because um, he does have another year on his contract, and maybe that's the role that he's best served. He did start a game at slot corner against Tampa. Uh, in 2022 and actually played really well in, in that role in that game. So maybe that more is his future in the safety spots, not, but um, you know, this past year trying to play Nick Scott, who was in over his head in the run game. And then you had to plug Jordan battle as a rookie. And he did some nice things in the, in the run game, but he was always off the field. It seemed like on third downs in place of Nick Scott he had to rotate. You had, you had a bunch of inexperience back there. And I, again, shame on me for not thinking it was going to be as big a deal as it turned out to be, but, um, you know, not having any veterans that, that really played. Nick Scott really hadn't even played a lot. He was a one-year starter in, in, in Los Angeles with the Rams. He'd been in the league for four years, but only a starter for one. I, I really thought they could mask that on the back end, and they really could not, and they did not. So to me, again, you can certainly hope that, that the young guys take a step forward in mental approach, recognition, being able to pass off coverages, all those things. But if you go into that with the hope and it doesn't come to – and we see the same exact thing – you can have Joe Burrow and T Higgins on that, on that contract all you want. And you're going to still maybe struggle to, to win 10 or 11 games because of that defense. All right. That was good stuff. We got through a lot of different little Bengals storylines there for the off season. Hopefully that gives you a good guide as we get into the off season there. We'll continue to talk about those things as they actually come up individually. Uh, but that, that should be a good primer. Skinny last week, we made uh, picks on the AFC and NFC championship games. Oh boy. It, it did not go great. Uh, I was two and two. You were zero and four. Um, that leaves us now at our, our overall record for this entire season, going back to the beginning of college football season, everything we've picked officially this year. You are 56, 53, and three. I am 53, 56, and three. So we are separated by uh, three games if you're going by overall record. I don't have the actual units there. So, so here's what we're going to do. For the Super Bowl, just to maybe break the tie, we're going to make five bets. Yep. All right? And we'll think about this between now and, and next week's podcast because we've got another week for the Super Bowl. The, the, obviously, the line, the total, and our three favorite pop, prop bets of where we would spend, we would spread out $100. Okay. All 
Okay. Do we get to choose our own prop bets or do we yes. each have to bet the same prop? No, we, we can choose our own prop bets. Okay. That's how it's going to go. So three games separates us. We'll have five picks on next week's Super Bowl. We will give you that on next week's show because obviously the Super Bowl ain't going to be played for another week and a half. Right. So uh, wait for that. And now we will get into some Ask Any Anything. We'll start with this question from Kevin. Skinny, what are your thoughts on how sporting tickets are now on your phone? If you go see an event and someone throws a perfect game, for example, you can't save the ticket stub. Second, are there any sporting event ticket stubs either of you have kept? Yeah, I've kept uh, – I didn't go to the game. My father did. I've kept – I kept – I actually went to the 75 Reds Pirates first game of the playoffs in the NLCS. I have that ticket because I, I went – actually by myself. My uncle got me a ticket. Um, I sat – remember when they used to have those lower blue seats like in the outfield for special circumstances? Do you remember that at all? Right behind the wall. It was literally right behind the wall. For special circumstances? Like even yeah, like, they didn't like, use them most like, of the time? Yeah, no, it was usually covered up. But oh, they opened okay. up no, I don't play. remember that. No. So I sat there. My uncle um, had some connections. So I sat there for that game. Um, I have that. Uh, my dad went to both the 81 um, and 88 Super Bowls. Uh, so I have ticket stubs from that. I know I've got some from Kentucky games I went to over the years um, as, a, as a fan, as a kid. Uh, I, my dad and I went to when they used to have the UKIT, the in-season Kentucky Invitational Tournament, was 14 thing. I think I kept every stub from seven. In fact, I saw Bob Huggins play in that, believe it or not, in the UKIT for West Virginia. Wow. Um, uh, I've kept six. I think we started going in 74 and I kept them all up until, you know, the time I was, was out of college. I'm sure I've got some others along the way. I know I kept the, uh, we went to the, uh, was it, was it the all American bowl? It was a Kentucky went to a bowl game in 1983 in Birmingham. I kept that ticket. So I've kept a chunk of tickets. I was with that guy's point. I'm kind of with him. It's kind of sad. Cause that's, that used to be kind of a big deal. Yeah, I've never kept any ticket stubs, um, at least not long term. I may have had it for like, you know, a year or two after the event, but then threw it away later. Nothing important. Um, my, yeah, my, daughter, my oldest daughter, Rick, in her room, um, you know, she has she's still got some stuff left over. She's got a big cork board that's still up in what was her old bedroom. She obviously doesn't live here anymore with ticket stubs from all the concerts she went concerts. to over the years. Yeah, yeah I've, seen, I've seen people do like, that. Okay, pretty cool, but can't do that anymore. Yeah, I... I so it's, it's definitely a sign of the times in terms of the collecting ticket stubs. Like that was a thing that was more popular years ago, obviously. And they put more time and detail, I think, into making those ticket stubs and making them look cool. Um, but I, I, I'm curious, how do you feel about the actual process of getting into games with everybody scanning their phones and all of that? Because okay. that seems to be more of the issue for me than, than the actual being able to keep the ticket stubs afterwards. Yeah, I, I don't mind that as a fan that I've gone into some of these games, um, especially, you know, the MLB app, I think is pretty easy, but old man me. So, you know, when we go on the road covering the Bengals, um, you know, most everybody gets their own individual rental car. So you, you get a, you ask for a parking pass and they, they give you the parking pass. Old man me, most of them come through SeatGeek. And I always forget my password. So there I am driving up to the gate half the time, freaking out, trying to get my password reset and all that. And then trying to get the ticket up. And then when it's up, I'm like, okay, just don't, don't, don't move. And then all of a sudden, you know how that is? It stays on your phone for so long and then goes away. And you have to go refine yeah. it again. And got to go into Safari. Oh my Lord. I, I wish I could. Oh, this is my point. That That's the issue. I, it's not me. Like I can get my phone out and get it to the ticket and open it up and have it scanned just fine. But all the people in front of me that like, it's a, it's a thing that's not, necessarily easy well, and, and, that's what, I, and i don't do. want to be that guy that's why i'm always messing with this i'm driving up to it i don't want to be the guy at the last second going oh let me no i mean i usually get it by the time i get to where it gets scanned yeah but, but it's, it's always thing. like 10 minutes of anxiety for me to do it 
Yeah, and that, I feel like a lot of people are going through that. So I'm not I'm not the old man here. I'm fine doing it, but I'll admit, like it is kind of a pain in the ass for everybody, it seems like, and it slows me down because everybody in front of me is now slower, and I don't love that. I, I just so at home games, actually, they give us a, a thing to park in the the CRG. You've done it in the in the garage yep. there. That's our, our media parking area. It's literally just hand the hand the guy a thing. He scans it to you, and off you go. I'm like that. That's not very hard, in my opinion. Uh, skinny. You're coaching a basketball team of Muppets. Who are the starting five? Well, there's no question the two old men in the balcony have to play. They would just be – they'd be hard asses. They'd be my two hard asses for they'd sure. They'd be your coaches. Um, what what I got to start Cookie Monster and just make, maybe turn him into Matumbo somehow, some way, right? I mean, like, can, can, I, can I make Cookie Monster Matumbo-sized? Yeah. Well, so is Cookie Monster on the Muppets? He's a Muppet? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, okay, I'm not re- – is Big Bird a Muppet too or is that Sesame Big Street? Big Bird's a Muppet. Yeah. Big okay. Bird. Well, Big Bird's got to be a center then, for sure. Uh, well, he's a, you know he's a four. That's what Bird was. A, he's a he's a he's a he's a he's a power four. He's a four. Okay. He's a yeah. Stretch, he's, a stretch four, he's a stretch four. Yeah. And then Kermit's the team leader. Kermit's the point guard. Yeah. Uh, Oscar for intimidation and and garbage man. Garbage man rebound garbage guy. Man, yeah. Yeah. Um, well, gar- garbage man would be the end of the bench guy that you come in you know in a, in a blowout one way or the other. He's garbage man in garbage time. Well, I was thinking garbage man, like getting the the dirty points, like oh, the yeah, okay. that's fair. rebounds that's good and tough, that's good. toughness stuff. Yeah, that's good yeah. Um, honestly, do you have any use for Bert and Ernie, that fat guy and that twig? I don't know. No, I, don't I, I think player. I think I think one would be one would one would be the, the they would both be like managers. I think. Yeah, that sounds right. Uh, Bert would be like keeping the scorebook for you. Burst the burst the guy with the bigger nose, right? The, the, the skinny small, one, fat, fat around face guy, right? Ernie's the guy with the longer face, correct? I thought Ernie was the fat one and Bert was the skinny one. Yeah, the, the fat one would be would be the scorekeeper. The other one would be the manager. Okay, all right, fair enough. Um, wasn't there a guy named Animal that was like kind of crazy? I don't remember Animal or something like that. Wasn't there like an orangish looking guy that was all crazy? And I feel Ms. like he'd be like Ms. a smart player off the bench. Miss Piggy would be the team owner, probably. There you go. There you go. Perfect. Like Marge shot right there. That's that's such a great question. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, what else do we got here? What is the worst movie sequel ever? Hmm. I'm going to go, you know, Caddyshack 2 was okay, but I was such a fan of Caddyshack itself that, that nothing was ever going to, to take its place. You know, most movie sequels are okay. It's when you get to sequel three, four, or five that just like, well, what are we doing here? I mean, really, what are we doing? I'm I'm looking up the worst uh, movie sequels of all time. Jaws: The Revenge is number two. Yeah, that's that's a, that's Revenge. a close one. Yeah, that's a close one. Yeah, um, none others that are really popping up that seem like a big deal. I saw The Ring too. That was horrible. That is a legit all time bad one. Uh, but The Ring itself probably wasn't that good looking back. So, all right, that's uh, yeah, that's that. I think I think we've done enough on, on that question. Uh, we'll wrap it up with this, I believe. Yeah, this is the last one. What are your go-to card games, Skinny? Oh, I'm a Euchre. I love Euchre. I could play Euchre. If you let me play Euchre every day, I'd play it. Um, I, 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 I'm, I'm, the, I'm the guy, and, and it makes my oldest daughter mad. She's, she was, she's been trying to learn the game. And I'm the guy that once, you know, you got a couple of tricks, and they've taken their one trick, and, you know, you're automatically getting the third because you got – a bar and a jack in your hand, you just throw it down the car. You go, okay, we're, we're good. And she's like, yeah. what, what just happened? It's like, well, I'm going to automatically get this no matter what anybody plays. So the hand's over. Why yeah. is it over? Well, we got our third trick. We couldn't get all five. So it's over. Um, 
I, I, again, I and people get mad at me when I do that, but it, that's what, it just speeds up the play, doesn't it? That, that's that's the euchre. I don't play euchre, but that is the everyone does that during euchre if they have yeah. any experience at all. But you are a card guy. You love cards. like cards. You have poker night still with guys. Yep. You, yep. Yeah, you, yep. you play a lot of cards. So you yeah, I, do. I, I, love, I love playing cards. Uh, you know, we play hold them at one guy's house. I play with some other buddies, some old high school friends I hadn't seen in a long time. They came up with a couple games I hadn't played, but I really liked them. We had a fun night doing it. Uh, but yeah, I, I love playing. I've always loved playing cards. I started at a young age. Hell, my dad taught me how to play gin rummy. I think when I was 10 and we would always, when we travel, we'd play on the plane and we always play for a penny a point, which, which, you know, when you lose 11 bucks as, as a, as a 10 year old, you kind of look at your days like we're good. But then of course, when you win the 11 bucks, you go, hey, work it pay, over, up, pay up pops. You owe me $11. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm, I hate cards, hate playing cards. Don't play any card games at all. Um, but as you know, I am a big left, right, center guy. Oh, because 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 it's such a it's such a game of skill, Rick. That's the beauty yeah. of it. And and I, by the way, I'm not good at left, right, center. There's there's no matter of good. There's a matter of luck. And then the the, the the weekend we cleaned you out, unfortunately, in Indianapolis, I felt bad for you because your luck was going sideways. As we know, Skinny, there may not be a way to be good at left, right, center, but you can be bad at it. I've proven that. Well, I'll tell you what. One of the greatest games we played was last year. Jay Morris and Paul Daner Jr. and I driving to Buffalo. Jay playing left, right, center with me holding the box in the back seat and him driving in a snowstorm and still rolling the dice is one of the greatest of all time. That's what we were doing on the way to Indy that year. Correct. We were correct. in the car <laughs> throwing it from the back seat. That's correct. Yeah. Yeah. It, 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 it's a fun. I'm a, I'm a left, right, center guy. Left, right, center. I like, I like Uno. The problem for Uno is it takes forever. Yeah. Left, right, center is great because it's quick and you can do it with a big group too. Correct. Correct. Yeah. All right. And That's all we got. All right, good stuff. Appreciate it as always. We'll be back next week looking at the Super Bowl. Uh, certainly talking a lot more college basketball, and we'll see if there's anything new on the Bengals' front. They still have to hire a quarterbacks coach, by the way, after they hired Dan Pitcher as, as offensive coordinator last week. Um, so we'll have all that and much, much more. We inch closer to Red Spring training as well. For Rick Boring, I'm Richard Skinner. This has been the Skinny Podcast, the weekly co-free edition presented by Blake, Attorney Mason.